everyone, this is Alicia Halliday, and this is the June 28th Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. In this new pandemic world, maybe we've all had the ability to rethink our preferred methods of communication. Maybe you miss seeing people face-to-face. Maybe you prefer telephone or Zoom. Maybe you wish you were back to the days of letters and faxes. Or like me, do you like the flexibility and want to mix based on who you're talking to and why? An online survey conducted by the University of Bristol in the UK asked autistic adults about how they preferred their method of communication. They did this study online and they had some people who had a self-reported diagnosis and some people with a clinical diagnosis. But get this, mostly female autistic adults answered this survey. They were asked about their preferred method of communication in a variety of settings, and also if they felt they camouflaged or masked their symptoms in each of these settings. They were asked their preference of communication in the following scenarios. One was accessing services, another was employment, the third was education, research studies, family, friends, and then customer service. I know we all love to talk face-to-face with someone about customer service. Just kidding. Overall, With the exception of family and friends, autistic adults prefer to use email. With family and friends, they were actually less averse to -to face-to-face than other scenarios, but text was actually neck-to-neck with face-to-face when communicating with family and friends. Everything was mostly about email or text, but one of the choices was instant messenger. Please come at me if you know and want to explain to me the actual difference between a text and an instant messenger in terms of a method of communication. Clearly there is one because autistic adults prefer text to instant messenger in a number of settings. What really stood out is that phone calls ranked about as desirable as a written letter, and that means a written letter on a piece of paper. I love a written letter, by the way. I was taught to write letters and I still do it. But in today's technology, I can see where emails or instant messages would be preferable. Phone calls were at the bottom consistently, not always at the very bottom, but there was not one scenario in which phone calls were the first preferred or even second preferred method of communication. I know what you're all thinking. They all filled this survey out online. Of course, they're going to say that they prefer online or email. This is taken from a group of people that prefers email and text devices, not the phone. And that's a good point and actually something that will come up in my reporting of a second paper today. I think it's probably safe to say that when you look at the spread of the data, it was all over the place. I'm talking just about averages. There were actually people that liked the phone. The responses were spread out in terms of preference. So just like everything autism, it's safe to say this is not a universal preference. It's a general preference, and it means that researchers need to try as hard as they can to use email or text to communicate with autistic people. But if you're a family or friend, be open to -to face-to-face, of course. Phone calls were actually better received by older people, probably because they were more used to it. I will also admit I didn't see on here or understand when the survey was done, either prior to March 2020 or after, but I'm going to assume after. However, Zoom and video conferencing was not on this list, so that could fit in here somewhere. Why these preferences? The autistic respondents said they preferred written, meaning text or email, because it allowed them to time to think. They didn't have to worry about sensory issues, managing conversations in their own environment, and they preferred the structure. They felt it gave people time to make sure it read well, 
said what they wanted to say, and also there was no expectation of an immediate reply. Also, with email and text communication, they could think about the question and they could think about their response. And if they felt that they heard something unexpected, they could take a state step back and feel less anxious about answering it. I get this. We all get this. But autistic people indicated that with email, they appreciated being able to allow someone else to review what they wrote or let someone else deal with it altogether over email than put in the uncomfortable situation where they needed time to think. Written communication reduced anxiety, and when I say written, I mean email and text, because there are no nonverbal cues to interpret. This information is important to know, but it's also important to appreciate the individual preferences of each autistic person. Some do want to talk on the phone. This study represents how we should consider these different methods in the autistic community, but there are no hard and fast rules. So the message for researchers from this study was try for email when recruiting or engaging participants in research. But even that has its own problems. Not to make this whole situation more difficult, because everyone does want to have a voice in research, including autistic adults. But when you're recruiting and collecting data of autistic adults online, there are some pitfalls. I think the pandemic is showing us how to overcome these challenges, especially since online surveys can be cheaper, quicker, and have a wider reach. Take, for example, the early career survey ASF did with Claire Harrop, Kim Carpenter, and Vanessa Ball. We never would have been able to send all of those letters or make all of those phone calls. Entering the data into a database by hand would have been a nightmare. It would have taken three times the amount of time to report the data back. But we did get a lot of good data in a short period of time. I mentioned this study because it also had responses mostly from women. But some of these studies that are used to examine large groups of autistic adults with different ages, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, and geography actually do have to be done online in today's age. Eric Rubenstein and Sarah Fernier at Boston University delved into some of these challenges. They're epidemiologists in autism research. They use an example of suicidal ideation as a case study. Now, ranges from online surveys are anywhere between 11% to 66% of autistic adults having suicidal thoughts. Well, that's kind of a wide range. We nearly, we clearly need better. We need to do better. Why would these numbers be so variable? And how can we use 11 to 66% as any sort of meaningful advocacy platform? Well, first, the first problem is selection bias. This is a problem in all research, not just studies in autistic adults. Participants are more likely to participate in surveys that interest them, as if in this case they've ever experienced suicidal ideation. And it's all about who you reach out to and who your audience is. How were the studies advertised and to whom? Did you get a good distribution across sources? What if all the autistic people came from listservs and the typically developing people came from doctor's offices? This can confuse the results, but more importantly, it never gets reported. What gets reported is the range of resources of recruitment, but never however, how many participated from each recruitment source, like how many participated from an online link or how many participated from social media. You can get these numbers. I say this not because it's just a problem for autism research, because it's a problem all over research. But the characteristics of people online in autism advocacy and interest groups are drastically different in terms of what their interests are, and you could get completely different responses based on where you send out the information. 
There's also some gaming of the system in autism. When I was at Autism Speaks, I remember we did a study gathering the opinions of the autism community about what they thought caused autism. Obviously, a group of people that thought one particular molecular pathway was causative circulated it pretty hard because 70% of the participants or something like that said they had believed just one, not multiple, but just one and the exact same one pathway was the cause. It wasn't vaccines, by the way. It was something I had never even heard of. There's no agreement like that in autism. Come on. Dr. Rubenstein calls this difference the difference between source populations and the sample population. Obviously, the sample population where you're getting the data from should be a random subset of the source population. However, this can be aspirational when you recruit from the United States, at least. Mostly people from New York and New England and then also California participate with a lot of in the middle being poorly represented. The good news is, though, that some statistical methods can be used to account for this, but it has to be recognized and acknowledged. Also, sometimes people make blanket statements about the autistic community without considering the com- a comparison community. What about typically developing adults? What about adults with Down syndrome? What about adults with anxiety without autism? What typically developing adult participates in a study about autism? I mean, probably the people listening to this podcast get it, but there are billions of people in the world that may or may not be motivated to participate or even know about a study about autism. Or not every autistic person is going to be motivated to participate in every autism research study. This can be a problem. The main takeaway I took from this, and sorry, Dr. Rubenstein, if this isn't your big takeaway, is we actually need better reporting of sample identification and demographics. This is pervasive in autism research, by the way. Three years ago, there was a study describing how many research publications describe the cognitive ability and language ability of participants in their studies, and it was pretty pathetic. We can definitely do better. If only people from New York responded to the survey, say that. And if you post it to a specific Facebook group, say that. I know social media is viral and what you post in one place can end up someplace else, but at least report it and stop saying dot, dot, dot in autistic adults like it represents everyone on the spectrum. It doesn't. It never will. Research can only talk about the people they actually talk to, and you can never talk to every single person. So if you do a big online survey with different perspectives, just say that. You won't get any criticism from me. And continue to do those online research study and autistic results. Just please don't turn them into phone calls. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.